Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I wanted to uh, start the talk by sharing a, a passage from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which uh, you might be familiar with, <clears throat> but maybe not. <clears throat> this is Suzuki Roshi. He says, In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses. Excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. And the fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth horse to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it is impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If you practice if you're practicing in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more sympathy and compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst one, and the worst horse can be the best one. Hmm. That might be a comfort for some of you. <laughs> maybe for others, say, oh my goodness, uh, maybe I need some problems here. Uh, uh. I want to talk tonight the title of the talk in my mind is Beyond the Judging Mind, also called the Comparing Mind. <clears throat> if you've had any judgments 
today or these days. <clears throat> Anyone not have any judgments these days? If you, if you haven't, it's, um, it's pretty unusual. In fact, in this model of freedom, at least the classical Theravadan model, there are, are four stages of enlightenment. Probably many of you are familiar with that. Stream enterer and the once returner and the non-returner and the arhat. I've always found it a comfort that even at the third stage of enlightenment, they're still judging in the mind. So if you find that you've had some judgment, it just means you're no higher than third stage, at least. But you've got a lot of company. <clears throat> this tendency we have to judge or compare, the Buddha talked of classically in, in the list of fetters. It's called conceit, or the conceit of I am because it's setting ourselves up. It's creating a sense of self and seeing how we're doing in relation to others. This is what the Buddha has to say on this comparing mind. If I can find it. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior, or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is Delivered by understanding, there are no follies, but those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. We seem to annoy ourselves a lot with our ideas and views of how we're doing and what good practice is. And it can come up a lot when we're practicing with others, even in this very rarefied situation. There is the tendency to wonder how we're doing. The comparing mind, it can come up, I know for, for me, when I practice it, can come up easily in um, meal times. Very social time, isn't it? Even in the silence. <clears throat> wow. Look how much they're putting on their plate. You know? you know? I think I'm a, more of a renunciate than they are. Or, gee, they're getting by with so little. Or, why don't they feed themselves? Or, whatever it is. Oh, look how slowly he's eating. You know. Oh my God, I dropped my fork. Everybody knows. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> what a klutz. Or walking meditation. That's another 
very common activator of the comparing mind. You know. Wow, look how slow she's going. Wow. I wish I could go that slowly. Or who does he think he is going so slowly? <laughs> Mr. Mindfulness over here. You know. <laughs> or God, walking fast. I wish I didn't care how other people thought, you know. Just so natural. Like, God, I wish I could just be that natural. Or doesn't she get it? Slow down, you know. The mind will just go into, as soon as we see something, often there's an evaluation. And it's, it's very often um, how we're doing and how we're presenting ourselves on one retreat, I like to, when I, when I really settle in, I, I just enjoy going in the slow mode um, often. It's, it's kind of, when you're in that mode, it's like sometimes it's hard to shift gears out. But I, when I'd be walking by myself, just really enjoying the process, when somebody else would come in, there'd be a whole other reason for walking that I didn't catch after a while. After a while, I kind of noticed it, and then I started labeling what I was experiencing, and I'd be doing lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, moving, <laughs> looking good, looking good. You know. I was saying looking good a lot, you know, and it was humbling, but there it was. That's what else was going on. Can you relate? I'm glad that there's a little laughter because the idea is to keep your sense of humor around it. You're not alone in this. It's just the mind doing its thing. As much of a tendency that is, I mean, the Buddha is talking about this 2,500 plus years ago. In our culture, particularly, it's such a competitive culture. You know, we're number one. We're number one. I'm, I'm a old sports fan and you know I, I always think of the those uh, foam hands that they sell at football games you know where number one where number one that's painful because number two doesn't seem to count very much unless you're Avis rent a car you know. but there's this way that we want to be the best, because that will count. My football team, my city, my region, my religion, my class. And it's, we get all these messages all over saying, you know, well, how good are you? you know, we don't do that. We walk out into the into the, the forest out here. It's so lovely to go in, on a walk. And when you go out into the, into the forest, you probably don't say, oh, that's the best tree in the forest. You know? <laughs> Gee, if that tree just weren't so gnarled, it would be, you know, or that one's got a lot of character. And this one's just... Every tree is its own perfect expression. But somehow when it comes to us... It's a different story. And then we see how we're doing in so many different ways. My mind. Oh, God, 
my mind is just all over the map. You know? Or, hey, my mind is pretty clear now. I wonder if I'm the clearest around here. Or my body, oh, if only my body were just a little different in this way or that way. It's amazing how we do that. Or my accomplishments, how do I measure up? Or my shortcomings, we can even pride ourselves on that. I remember when I was going to college uh, ages ago, I used to kind of pride myself on how messed up I was because I thought it was deep. I'm really, I'm not shallow. I'm screwed up, you know. (laughs) It's amazing how we can just, anything, start to make that comparison in the mind. And it happens, of course, a lot in practice, as I say. It happens also being in the the Dharma seat, in the, the, the teacher role, you know. Oh, Neoshin gave such a lovely talk the other night. I hope I give as good a talk. Or when I first was practicing many years ago, there I was. I used to teach in uh, Yucca Valley for many years. And when I was first giving Dharma talks, there would, Joseph Goldstein would give a talk one night. Jack Cornfield would give a talk the next night, you know, and Joseph is brilliance and clarity and inspiration that I'd be, that was really what moved me to get into practice. And Jack would weave his magic spell of, you know, dharma and metta. And then I'd be going on next, and I know if I was in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy out and get Goldstein back on, you know. But there I was, you know, opening up my mouth, and I I had to say something. It was a real trial by fire. Now, this is not something only in beginning practice. And I, I want to share with you a, a, a great little anecdote from Ajahn Sumedho. Many of you perhaps know him, uh, the head monk at uh, Amaravati and Ajahn Chah's Dharma heir, and the most revered and respected Theravadan monk, Western monk, at least. And I think some would say, you know, right up there with anybody around today. He says, um, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public, in roll call, would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight- or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I would give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I would feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. 
one time at a patina ceremony where we had to stay up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up there on the high seat and talked for three hours. I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies left sitting there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedha, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them and really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks these past many years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So we can compare ourselves with others and we can also compare ourselves with the ideals that we have of how we should be doing And often we have very high standards, particularly if you come with a great sincerity of effort. Your standards are that much higher. And if you are comparing what's happening with what you wish would be happening, it's almost always a losing battle. You know, hindrance-free. If I were really doing it right, I'd be a hindrance-free yogi. Nyoshin uh, gave a talk the other night, a lovely talk on the hindrances. Don't wait for the hindrance to, to go away. You'll be waiting a long time. It's more being with things as they actually are. That's, that's the secret. This conceit of I am is really rooted in fear, in fear of not being enough, the fear of not being complete just as you are, and the feeling underneath of not accepting who we are. And this often takes the form of unworthiness, Who am I to think I could really become free? I saw this a lot in in my own practice. I remember, actually, it was in 1979, on the three-month course. At the end of the three-month course, the Dalai Lama came to visit, which is a great way to end a fall retreat. And there was this one exchange that left a deep impression on me. Somebody asked asked His Holiness, "Uh, what do you do? do? How do you work with unworthiness? 
And it actually took a little while for the translator to get the concept across because the Dalai Lama hadn't been familiar with this feeling of unworthiness before. And I often think, well, you know, if you were told from the age of two that you're the bodhisattva of infinite compassion, you probably have pretty good self-esteem. <laughs> but it seems also just more uh, common in our, in our culture uh, than in Tibetan culture. Anyway, it took a little while for the, the translation, and finally he got it, and he looked at this person, and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You imagine the Dalai Lama saying, you're wrong. You're absolutely... <laughs> he, but he said it with incredible compassion, and then he went on to basically explain what I got from the, from the response was, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of life and somehow you're not good enough, that you don't belong? You're wrong. Don't you see that? This is something for us to take a look at. It's so deep. It's so deep in uh, practitioners. You know, it takes a while to learn to really appreciate and love ourselves fully. And the way I see it, we can't do it enough because the more we, we really see who we really are, then that is allowed to shine through. I came across this, um, this quote a number of years ago. I, I don't know who said it. It was anonymous in the place that I caught it, but um, I love it, saying... Um, Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Isn't that great? Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. When you see who you really are, which is beyond this constructed personality that we take to be me, um, it's really good news. The Buddha said, if you take a look at this mind-body process, you will see five aggregates. I won't go into this in depth at this point, but and probably many of you are familiar. There is the body, form, feeling the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral flavor of experience, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And that's it. That is the one you've been issued. This is the laboratory you've been issued to understand the human experience. We are just these five components, the, the body and the other four comprising the mind. And the difference between, it is said, between one who is free and one who is lost is one who is confused grasps at those five aggregates as being who I am, for better or worse. And that's the conceit of I am. This is me. And there's the comparing mind. 
one who sees clearly does not grasp at the, at the aggregates, does not take that to be who I am. And then when you see beyond these aggregates, beyond these skandhas, you see something quite extraordinary. You see your Buddha nature, as it said in, in Mahayana. You see what Ajahn Sumedho calls the shining through of the divine. I love that, that, uh, that phrase that he uses, the shining through of the divine. When you're not caught in identifying with the aggregates, something else shines through. This is um, Wang Po. He says, Your true nature is something never lost to you, even in moments of delusion, nor is it, is it gained at the moment of enlightenment. This pure mind or pure heart, the source of everything, shines forever and on all with the brilliance of its own perfection. But most people of the world do not awake to it regarding only that which sees, hears, feels, and knows as mind. That is, taking the aggregates, clinging to them. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing, they do not perceive the spiritual brilliance of the source. If they would only eliminate all conceptual thoughts in a flash, that source would manifest itself like the sun ascending through the void and illuminating the whole universe without hindrance or bounds. And from the Buddha himself, luminous is this mind, he says, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. When we take ourselves to be small, believing in our littleness. Uh, this is just another stance of selfing. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of my more quotable teachers, said, timidity is just another ego trip. Timidity is just, it's, oh, little me, but there's the stance, you know. Oh, I hope people don't, don't see me. You ever walk into a room and somebody's really self-conscious and hoping people don't see your eyes just gravitate to them. You know, oh, I hope they're okay. <laughs> There's no way getting around it. You will present. You can't hide. And actually, it just reminds me of I'll read this. Maybe some of you are familiar with this quote, uh, probably. Number R. Marianne Williamson, she says, Our deepest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. 
we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So, given that, the question is, how do we work with this judging mind, which is here until full enlightenment? So I thought I'd share a few um, approaches that I find helpful. First of all, first of all, um, I think it's so important to have an attitude of forgiveness. And I won't talk much now because I think later on there might be a, a talk about forgiveness, but I'll just say a little bit because for me, we get such a, a chance to work with forgiveness all the time. You know, it's humbling, this practice. And for me, forgiveness, we have a chance to forgive our minds and our bodies and, um, and our meditation. For me, the real understanding is seeing the conditioning that we're subject to. And in a moment, that can turn into compassion. I'll share a story from my own practice that was so helpful in working with this judging mind. It was in uh, 1979. It was that same retreat that the Dalai Lama came towards the end. And I was doing um, walking meditation. uh, And I was all by myself in in the gym, which now is converted to lots of cubicles, but it used to be a walking room down at uh, the basement of IMS. I was all by myself. It was towards the last part of the retreat, and I just wanted to experiment to, for the fun of it to see how slowly I could go. So I, you know, I just kind of pretended to be Marcel Marceau. You know, just how would he do it? Really, it was so fun. And in the middle of this exercise, somebody came into the walking room. And in those days, they tagged on a two-week retreat at the end of the three-month course. So they only did that for a, a couple of years. They saw this is not such a wise idea. But those, those, you can imagine when somebody comes in, you can really tell. Maybe you could tell when I came in. It was probably like a little bull in the china shop, I, I felt like. But when somebody comes in and they're as, as a yogi and they're practicing, it takes a little while to slow down. Well, I wasn't going to stop my little game. You know? <laughs> I wasn't noting looking good by that point. I hadn't quite caught it. But there I was going really slowly. 
And after about two minutes, this person bolted out of the walking room in what I was sure was, you know, humbled comparing mind. And as they walked past my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. (laughs) And after I said the words, I heard them in all their glory, all this ego and presentation and yuck. And it was so humbling. I went from this slow walking to being like a caged tiger. I just started going back and forth saying, God, I've been here for two months. I'll never get out of this ego, all of this. And I did that for about 10 minutes until the thought occurred to me. I don't know how it happened, but just the thought occurred to me the millions and millions of times I'd had that kind of a thought that I would never have caught except I was quiet enough to catch it. Otherwise, it would have just washed through me, but I could see it in all its starkness. And in a moment, there was this wave of forgiveness and compassion. I also by that time had thought in terms of more than one lifetime. So that just kind of completely boggled the millions of times in this lifetime, let alone all the other lifetimes. And it was like, oh, what do you think? In two months, you're going to undo all of that conditioning? And there was, it was really a turning point in my practice. It was one of the first times that I actually felt tenderness and compassion for myself. Oh, you're trying so hard, dear. And um, that was much more important than seeing how slowly I could go. Believe me. So just forgiveness for, for seeing the conditioning, the understanding of the conditioning that we're up against and being really kind and patient with that. Another key in working with the judging mind related to this forgiveness is a quality of tenderness and compassion. And the way that one way I'll just offer to you that was that has been also a very important part of my own practice working with the judging mind because. I've got a pretty good judging mind. <clears throat> Better than yours, I bet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just playing around. For two years, my main practice was noting the judging mind with kindness. Because, and if you, some people are doing mental noting, some aren't, and you know, there's, there's nothing wholly about mental noting, but it can be a very useful tool, particularly if you are aware of the tone of the noting. Because you can beat yourself up with the noting. You you notice judging. Oh, judging, judging. Oh, darn it, I just did it again, judging. 
and you can add one layer on top of another, there's no end to that until at some point, if you note and notice the judging with kindness, you begin to transform your relationship to that tendency of mind. So I'll share with you my main practice for this two-year period. Just try this if you feel like it. Just indulge me in it or don't as you like. Suppose you really see yourself as a judging thought, okay? And you want to be skillful with it. Put your hand on your cheek. You can try this right now if you're willing to. Okay, I know it might seem silly, so close your eyes so you don't feel quite so self-conscious. And as you caress your cheek as if Kuan Yin is doing the noting, just say in the tenderest voice to yourself silently, judging, judging. It's okay, dear, judging. Can you feel that? That's how I would suggest noting the judging mind, particularly if you get caught in that. And when I said it was my main practice for for two years, I didn't do this each time, but sometimes I did if I'd forget. But there's something about getting a visceral experience that you can feel the tenderness from inside. And if you can give that note that quality of tenderness, then every time you notice the judging mind, you are bringing Kuan Yin to the experience because there is a very compassionate and kind and tender part of you and wise part that knows beating yourself up doesn't help and that can feel the the understanding and the kindness that comes from seeing, oh, you're doing the best you can. It's okay. If you have a tendency to get lost in the judging mind, I'd really encourage you to play with that a little, you know. It's not like you have to do that all the time, but just particularly if you're using the mental noting, tune into the tone of the noting if you have a tendency to get harsh. So that's a, a second one just a basic forgiveness, and then a, a quality of compassion in the recognition. Something else is seeing the thought as empty. Once you've seen the emptiness of thoughts, once you see it, if you really get it, then it's just a matter of remembering, oh, it's just a thought. Because thoughts are as real as we believe them to be or as empty as we realize them to be. It's just this mental formation arising that we take to be real. And then we battle it or feel joyful about it or... You know, Joseph has this really great instruction. Uh, he says, if you're bothered by your thoughts, sitting in the hall and there's other people around, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. you 
for all intents and purposes, they are. You don't invite those thoughts in. You don't say, I'm going to have a little bit of rage right now. <laughs> oh, I could go for some doubt. That'll... They just come all by themselves, completely unbidden. And when you see how empty they are, they come and they go. That's the real freedom. One of my other main practices, I don't know if we'll talk, I'll talk later on about it, or maybe we'll talk more about thoughts later on, but I'll just say one of my main practices these days is just remembering or realizing when I get caught to ask myself, what thought am I believing right now? Sometimes I'll, I'll say, what story am I believing? Because that's all that's happened. It's just you've taken this blip that's come through consciousness to be real, and then there's either a, a battle or uh, a trouble or a delight or whatever, and it's just thoughts. So you're sitting here and watching all of them come and go, all of them come and go, and as you sit and just feel this cascade waterfall of thoughts and sit and not jump on the train or not, not jump in the, in the waterfall, there is more space for us to choose in our life what thoughts we want to give energy to and which thoughts we can let go. But we need to practice just watching all of them come and go and not latching on even to the profound Dharma thoughts. Although I, I, you know, I, I want to mention it came up in an interview today. When we have a deep insight and something really rocks us, that's not just a rumination, but a new understanding, precisely because we're not thinking our way through. And when that comes, I think it's really fine and and healthy to just let it register. You don't even have a choice when it's that. Aha! But be judicious about how much you get into it because then it can just get into spinning wheels and figuring out. But for the most part, just noticing all the thoughts coming and going, coming and going is so freeing. And here we are, the space of awareness in which they arise and pass away. Another aspect of working with the judging mind is uh, having a sense of humor. As my good buddy uh, Wes Nisker, one of the teachers out in Spirit Rock, also known as Scoop Nisker, as he says, if you can't laugh, it's just not funny. (laughs) (laughs) And we can get very serious doing this practice very quickly. You get no bonus points for grimness. You're not cultivating grimness. This does not, this is not what the enlightened state is about. I don't imagine the Buddha walked around being grim and moping, or you see the Dalai Lama or some great Sayadaw or Rinpoche who knows the, the lightness. Ajahn Chah was beautiful like that. You know, he's so inspiring. Or, you know, you can pick the person who inspires you. 
there's a kind of spaciousness that comes. And so having a sense of humor, then you can be in on the joke instead of the butt of the joke. And that really means going from, oh, look at my mind, to just removing the my and seeing, oh, look at the mind. Isn't it amazing? This is the laboratory you're exploring. Like I was saying to somebody, that I love the line in the teachings, the Buddha says, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. This is your laboratory to understand this body and mind. Not to take it personally. Not to get into that conceit of I am. Oh, look at that. Look at how the mind works instead of my mind. And you can get, it's amazing, you can get snagged in just a moment and then it's important to keep on remembering your sense of humor. I remember on one retreat, it's just occurring to me, that uh, I had the instruction, Joseph gave me the instruction, notice how any sense of self is being created. I got really excited, okay, let's see if I can find a sense of self. No sense of self here. Oh, not now. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh. It was really cool. This one one afternoon, I was doing walking. If you know IMS, I was on the bowling alley lane, which is one of my favorite walking spaces. And in from the corridor comes this um, kind of bull in the china shop yogi. Right. Who, you know, probably was more than a, a one person's VV. That's Vipassana Vendetta in their mind. Right. And uh, and there he was, and he and he um, he was writing as he was walking. He had this big book. Some people were were reporting in writing style, reporting there. You know, clearest sitting or you know meditation experience. And there he was walking through the corridor, as he was walking, writing in this big book, you know, what I thought was his imagined, you know, super meditation experience, he can walk, and clomping away, and the thought occurred to me, well, I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he does. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops, uh, snagged again. It just kind of comes up from around, from behind. It's so subtle. All I could do was laugh. So I offer that as a suggestion. If you've got a choice to freak out and say, oh my goodness, or laugh, go for the latter. Sometimes all you need to do is just curl your lips up and that frown will, will open up into a spacious Buddha smile. Sometimes I'll have a, a little uh, dialogue with myself, the devil and angel on, on my, my shoulders. You, know, you said you'd smile. Yeah, but I don't feel like smiling. You said you smile. Yeah, but I just, you know, you, all right already. And I'll go into the bathroom and just kind of make a stupid, you know, toothy grin smile. <laughs> just try it. You know, just try it right now. A big, stupid, toothy grin smile. Doesn't it feel good? In a moment, it just kind of breaks 
that stuckness. And now I'm not talking about if you're going through something deep and some, some trauma or some grieving or some pain. I'm not talking about denying or covering it up. But I'm talking about if you're just getting into a, a rut of stuckness and solemnity, lighten up. Just lighten up. Another aspect of the judging mind is really learning to listen, learning to listen wisely and discerning between the different voices that come through. Because we have so many different voices that come through, I think the key is learning how to listen to those, discern between those voices, between there's lots of thoughts that come through with a, a finger wagging at us, that's generally the judging mind, you know. If you got this going, you know, come on now, or why don't you, or you'd better, or why didn't he, and there's a kind of contraction or agitation, chances are that's the judging mind. Then there are other voices that come through that are saying, this feels right. No, this doesn't feel right. That have a, a ring of kindness and compassion and wisdom. Do you know that voice? You know what I'm talking about? Getting to know that really well, it's like you, you're setting up a main line to the Buddha inside. When you're taking refuge in the Buddha, that's what we're doing. You can hear it in the tone and you can hear it, you can feel it in the body. I, I often think of this practice as just learning to listen more and more skillfully. You, know, you might be familiar with Milarepa from the Tibetan Tonkas, Milarepa. You can always tell it's Milarepa because he has his hand to his ear listening to the 100,000 Dharma songs. And I really take that as pointing to the practice, learning to listen more and more wisely to the Dharma inside of us as we're listening one moment after another to the truth in this moment. Oh, this is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. I'm being receptive to it. It's like we're, we're strengthening that capacity to listen inside as well as outside. Something else, just a couple more and then, then I'll close is um, when that judging mind becomes strong, acting as if we were Kuan Yin. You know, you know when I suggested that, that kind tone, it might seem remote, but just act as if you were a Buddha. How would the Buddha or Kuan Yin relate to this experience? Because as we incline the mind to that possibility, it's like we're planting the seed. And when we, when we do that, what we need to do and what, what hopefully we're developing is focusing on what's pure and good inside of us, our sincerity of heart. Not judging by what our practice looks like on the outside. We so often equate effort, right effort, by what our practice looks like on the outside. 
I think of right effort as coming from sincerity of heart. That's our end of the deal. And so acting as if by focusing on that sincerity and we connect directly with that Buddha inside. Of course, then there's the refuges. You know, when we can't do it on our own to take refuge in something much larger than us, whether you're inspired by the Buddha, Gotama Buddha, or by the Dharma, learning somehow to trust something bigger than ourselves, or the Sangha, then we open up the field and not get lost in our small mind. So all of these ways, and you, I'm sure, uh, find other ways that you found helpful to work with the, the judging mind or the comparing mind, whether it's forgiveness or compassion or humor or seeing the emptiness of the thoughts or acting as if you were awake or taking refuge. All of this is for us to see who we really are. And when we do, the comparing is irrelevant. You know, can you say, my pure awareness is better than your pure awareness? My unconditional love is better than... It doesn't make any sense. And in that, there's no comparison. No comparison. So as you work with the judging mind, really see it as a doorway to go deeper to that pure being that's not confused. All the things that get in the way become the very grist for waking up. And I'll end with a poem that I really love from um, a woman named Dana Falls, who um, is a yoga teacher and a, a great uh, poet. Uh, this is from a book called go in and in, and the the poem is called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. (laughs) 
So let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.